African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, good morning, everybody. It is that time again, 11 o'clock Central African time. Definitely time for African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Mushatama, right here on Channel Africa. Remember, we're on the shortwave frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa on DSTV on Channel 802 on the audio bouquet. You can also stream us live on www.channelafrica.co.za. Well, today marks six years since 34 miners were gunned down by police during a wildcat strike at Lot Min's Marikana operations in the northwest province of South Africa. Mine workers were demanding uh, 12,500 rands, South African rands, as a minimum monthly salary. Well, on the program today, we're going to reflect on the Marikana situation and look at the state of mines in the country. But also, did we see any reparations when it comes to the Marikana community as a whole? But before we get into that, Anmus is already standing by to give us our news updates. In the headlines, Somali President Mohamed Abdullahif Amajo heads to Djibouti after protests against Somalia's call for the lifting of UN sanctions on Eritrea. A South African judge calls for the 16th of August to be declared a public holiday following the Marikana massacre. And more than 300 news organizations in the United States publish editorials in defense of press freedom. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Somali President Mohamed Abdullahi Fomaju is heading to Djibouti two weeks after its envoy in Mogadishu protested against Somalia's call for the lifting of United Nations sanctions on Eritrea. On Tuesday, the Somali government also announced that it was ready to mediate to resolve the bitter dispute between Djibouti and Eritrea. It's unclear whether Famaja will hold talks with the leaders of Djibouti over the Djibouti-Eritrea border dispute. A border dispute between Djibouti and Eritrea resulted in armed clashes in June 2008, leaving several people dead from both sides. A Libyan court has sentenced 45 militiamen to death by firing squad for killing demonstrators in the capital, Tripoli, during the 2011 uprising against longtime leader Muammar Gaddafi. Dozens of demonstrators were killed on the 21st of August when pro-regime militiamen opened fire near the Abu Slim district of the capital. The Justice Ministry says 54 other defendants were sentenced to five years in jail, 22 were acquitted and three others had died before the verdict was reached. Gaddafi was killed in October 2011 near his hometown of Sirte, south of the capital. 
Law experts, union representatives and community members have slammed the South African government for doing little for the victims of Marikana. Six years after it happened, 34 people were shot dead by police at Marikana near Rustenburg in the country's northwest province on the 16th of August 2012 during a violent strike at Lonman Mine. Speaking at the Marikana Memorial Lecture, Western Cape Judge John Clope called for the 16th of August to be declared a public holiday. So two massacres, the one in 1960 has acquired the status of a public holiday in South Africa known as the Human Rights Day. The second massacre, the 1976 Soweto Day, is now known as the Youth Day. It has again acquired the status of a public holiday. Inevitably the question that arises why not Marika? Amnesty International's new Secretary General Kumi Naidu is expected to outline his vision for the future of the global human rights organization in Johannesburg in South Africa. South African-born Naidu, a former anti-apartheid activist, has previously headed world bodies like Greenpeace and the global campaign to end poverty. Amnesty says it takes over at a turbulent time for human rights. reports. Xenophobic violence in South Africa, the recent crackdown on opposition supporters in Zimbabwe, the upcoming elections in the DRC, and controversial statements by U.S. President Donald Trump. These are just some of the issues that NGOs like Amnesty International strive to keep the eyes of the world on. As Kumi Naidu outlines his vision at the helm of Amnesty, it will be interesting to find out if governments heed calls made by the movements and if ordinary people feel the impact of their work. And finally, more than 300 news organizations in the United States have published editorials in defense of press freedom. They say President Donald Trump is responsible for a sustained attack on the media. The Boston Globe, which coordinated the editorials, says it's dangerous that members of the media who do not support the policies of the Trump administration are labeled as enemies of the people. Trump has previously called media reports fake news, prompting United Nations experts to raise concerns over the risk of violence against journalists. Recapping the top stories, the Somali president, Mohamed Abdullahi Fermajo, heads to Djibouti after protests against Somalia's call for the lifting of UN sanctions on Eritrea. A South African judge calls for the 16th of August to be declared a public holiday following the Marikana massacre. And more than 300 news organizations in the United States publish editorials in defense of press freedom. Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Womanity, Women in Unity, an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Womanity, Women in Unity, 
on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Humanity, Women in Unity with Dr. Amalea Gones Malka every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements. The voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Well, thank you for joining us right here on African Dialogue. As I mentioned when we started the program before our bulletin with Anne Musa, is that today we're going to be reflecting what happened six years ago in South Africa, a tragic moment when 34 miners were gunned down by police during a wildcat strike at Lonman's Marikana operations in the northwest province of South Africa. Uh, 44 people in total are said to be killed on the 16th of August 2012 at Lonmin's Marikana Operations in what is now known uh, as the Marikana Massacre. Uh, the Falun Commission, which was released by government in June 2015, rejected the police's explanation for the deaths, but as yet, no full account has been provided for what actually happened to actually cause this particular massacre. That's still a contentious uh, uh, arguments that are being made from different sides, so the conclusion of that hasn't really been finalized. However, a According to a new Marikana report released by the Institute for Security Studies, um, ISS striking mine workers did not attack police at the small copy, despite police testimony of protesters having shot at them. So we're going to be looking at uh, this particular massacre. What does it actually mean now, six years down the line? Have we also seen any reparations uh, for the communities? We're joined in uh, our studios by Kuselwa Gyanki, who is uh, the candidate at attorney at the Socio-Economic Rights Institute. And also we have David Bruce, who's an independent researcher on Marikan. And also uh, he released this particular report just uh, recently looking at uh, some of uh, the key areas of what happened in uh, Marikana. A very interesting report titled The Sound of Gunfire, the Police Shootings at Marikana. And uh, we'll start with you, David. I mean, it's six years down the line. In terms of your retrospective outlook of what happened at Marikana, six years down the line, do you think we still understand the the intensity of that particular moment and do we still have all the questions answered? Right, okay. Well, um, I think maybe it is useful just to take a step back and sure. just um, get down some of the basic facts about what happened there. So... Um, and uh, we could also talk about some of the incidents that happened over the preceding days. But mm. if we're just focusing on the 16th, there were 34 strikers who were killed. But those strikers were killed at two different locations. So when people think about Marikana and they think about um, the, the the killings that took place there, they they um, uh, they they. Impressions about what happened are often framed by two images. The sure. one is an image of a large number of strikers gathered on uh, on a kopi, mm. uh, you know, a, a fairly rocky, um, fairly large kopi. Let's mm. just call it that. Sure. A, a much a, a, a larger kopi, and and so in addition to that, there's images that were 
um, relayed on a number of television channels um, in the days after the massacre of police shooting a group of strikers. Now, that is what is known. That, that incident happened about 100 meters, let's say, from, from the large copy sure. um, uh, next to a small crawl. And there were, um, there were 17 strikers killed in that incident. And so at the Marikana Commission, that was called Scene 1. That was the first site at which killings took place on that day. That was at 6 minutes to 4. At 15 minutes later, starting at 9 minutes past 4, there was another series of shootings that took place at another location. Mm. That location is known as the Small Copy. So uh, it one shouldn't confuse it with uh, the with, with the uh, the larger uh, with the larger copy which uh, w- w- one often sees images of sure. in in photographs of Marikana. Mm. It's in many ways it's the question one could ask whether it deserves the name of copy. There are some very large rocks there, mm. but in many ways it's an area which is characterized by by by, by sort of large boulders and and bushes and things like that. Sure. And strikers had gone there. A lot of them uh, were, f- you know, they'd they'd fled from the scene where uh, uh, the location where the first shooting took place. Mm. And a lot of them ended up in this location. And so, uh, and some police units then converged on this location mm. and, and another 17 strikers were killed there. So the Marikana massacre is actually two incidents that take place within the space of, of less than half an hour. Mm. So the, the second uh, set of shootings took place over 11 minutes at this area called the Small Copy. Mm. Um, and so they, they, they finished just before 20 past four. So from between about six minutes to four and 20, uh, 20 past four is, mm. is when uh, these, these two s- uh, sets of shootings took place. Now, let's look at uh, what actually informed this kind of um, December occasion of uh, these particular police specifically because there are questions around that um, uh, David that who gave orders to actually release these police to go to uh, these particular scenes and we know at the time there were conversations around emails of the current president Cyril Ramaphosa and that connected the uh, ex-police commissioner Ria Pecha in that particular mix are there still questions around uh, who actually made the particular order to actually say it's time for the police to actually go to the Marikana scene? Yes, sure, there are questions. So, for instance, um, what's clear is that a decision was made on the 15th, the day before, mm. that um, if the strikers didn't voluntarily disarm on the following day, mm. the, that the police would take action to forcefully disarm them. Um, and so um, there was a meeting of police on the night of the 15th. Um, and so that could be seen as a meeting which was convened in order to, to almost rubber stamp the decision. Mm. So exactly who was involved in making the decision has never been clarified. And the, 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 the Marikana Commission itself described the decision as inexplicable. Mm. The motivation for the decision was never clearly explained to the commission. To the commission, having said that, I just uh, would like to say that uh, you know uh, the 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 whole issue around Marikana is obviously um, a, a bit of a political football, and so you know so there's I mean it, my impression is that um, 
you know, the, the assertions that are, that are made around Marikana are not always, um, you know, objective assertions. There's often a kind of politics behind them. In my view, the, the, the failure of our current president, Cyril Ramaphosa, for, at Marikana related to his involvement in the period prior to the massacre. So, um, so I think what you could say is that he's morally responsible in some ways because he contributed to closing down the space. He, you know, there was a, a, a view by some people in London that they shouldn't negotiate with the, with the strikers. And in, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa endorsed that view, and that's particularly considering his background in the labor movement. I think that is a, a, a moral failure. But on the other hand, I don't think one can see him as having been someone who was instrumental in the actual decision to go ahead with the operation against the strikers, knowing that uh, it was likely to lead to, to, to um, deaths. And, and so I would make that distic- distinction in talking about these questions. So I would, you know, I would, uh, I would imagine that there were political role players who were involved in making these decisions. But I, um, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the, our president um, at this time was not actually in the cabinet at sure, that point. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I don't see him as being central in the, in the, in the final decision-making process. Let me come to you, Kuselwa, because just listening to David, you just hear that there's still a lot that is lingering around um, that particular event in itself. And even when you look back from the community aspect, we've seen a lot of documentaries after of people kind of going back to um, Marikana and trying to kind of assess the situation there and also looking at whether the community has any kind of reparations from that awful experience. From your perspective and the work that you have done from the Socioeconomic Rights Institution, have we seen some form of reparations for that particular community? Uh, reflecting back, has the commission done enough to actually validate some of the questions that were asked by the community themselves? Okay, thank you. Um, on our side, we are representing the the families of mm-hmm. those uh, who were killed in Marikana. So representing 36 uh, families. Sure. Uh, it, 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 it's funny because they're coming from different um, areas like Eastern Cape, Lesotho, Swaziland, and now they are uh, they are based in Marikana as we speak. So they took over the, 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 the employment of their late husbands and uh, their loved ones. So now they are part of the Marikana community. So when you ask um, if uh, uh, in 2018 is there any change after 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 maybe the release of the commission's report um there is nothing if you can now um certified uh, civil claims suing the minister of police of uh, because of what happened saying that um since the breadwinners have are now gone they must pay the the them a loss of support that was 2015 we are in 2018 now they still haven't received anything and um, again, um, we asked the government to apologize to the families, to acknowledge the, 
the 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 the, the massacre and um, uh, uh, apologize to the families. That was part of the our head. So it was not just saying it in public. We put it on our court files that they must come and apologize and acknowledge um, the the massacre. But when 2018, none of that has happened. Even though that we are in a process of um, receiving uh, a loss of support uh, claim. And uh, we haven't seen anything else other than that. And uh, since 2012, the families were suffering, and they asked us to to speak to Lon Min, to speak to government, to give th- to give them something while they are still waiting for the commission's report. Because uh, every time they were uh, approaching um, um, uh, other 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 means to to get someone accountable of what happened, sure. we were told to wait for the commission's report. So now, like we cannot wait and do nothing. So far, because our loved ones were working for Lon Min, Lon Min doesn't wanna give us anything. Thing, uh, without uh, maybe taking employment, can we just take uh, over um, the duties of our husbands then and go underground just like them so that we can support our families? So after it took that also alone, that plea, it took uh, loan mean two years to respond to the families. Mm-hmm. And then now they are in Marikana working for loan mean, wow. uh, also experiencing the same things that uh, the Marikana community are experiencing. So, uh, yeah, it is very difficult and um, they haven't seen justice, I must speak um, the truth. Let me come to Patrick Craven, who's joining us on the line, spokesperson of the South African Federation of Trade Unions. Just listening to David and Kusello, I'm kind of getting goosebumps, not just externally, but internally, because it seems like here the the cry of the worker is almost like an unheard song, and it's almost like... uh, very much we've seen structures being created, the commissions. We've seen also kind of ramifications with the uh, police commissioner being removed. But still, it seems like on the ground there hasn't been a change, Patrick. Yes, that was one of the question, questions I was going to try and answer. It was, as you say, an appalling, appalling massacre. Uh, on the same sort of scale as Sharpeville and Soweto in nineteen. 19- 76, which we remember with a special public holiday and a month named after the issues they raised. And we mm. think that Marikana ought to be treated as seriously as that. But perhaps the biggest scandal of all is that uh, here we are six years later, still asking so many questions to which we haven't had answers, both in relation to who was responsible, who did what, when and where. Uh, so that's why we welcome um, David Bruce's latest report, which I think will take us a bit further. Mm. Our concern is not just that uh, justice must be done and that those uh, guilty must, be, must face the consequences. But if we don't do that, we'll fail to learn the lessons. And at a time when uh, mine unions are again in- engaged in negotiations on wages, there is always the danger that if they deadlock and things start to get out of hand, we could move towards another Marikana. And that must not happen. And if we don't learn the lessons, then we could uh, find ourselves in a similar situation. We've seen a number of violent confrontations uh, of a lesser scale quite recently in relation to the ESCOM uh, strike and even Mm. the um, total shutdown march. Mm. There were allegations of uh, serious misconduct by police officers. We have to tackle the broader question of the role of the police in their society and... uh, as after we would say also, the, uh, the, the uh, industrial relations issues. 
we simply uh, cannot allow employers to be able to use the state to uh, take such drastic action to resolve what was at the end of the day an industrial dispute over the wages that should be paid to uh, rock drill workers. Well, I'm going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and unpack uh, some of uh, the findings from uh, David uh, Bruce's uh, report. Uh, we've got David Bruce, who is an independent researcher. He actually spent some time looking at Marikana, spoke to various stakeholders uh, from government, from the community, and also uh, some police officers. Uh, so it's a very comprehensive report. We'll try to briefly look at some of the key findings of the report. We also also have Kuselwa Gyanki, who is uh, the candidate attorney at the Socioeconomic Rights Institution, an organization that actually has worked with the community and is trying to legally assist them to get some form of reparation. On the line is Patrick Craven, spokesperson of the South African Federation of Trade Unions. It's 24 minutes past 11 o'clock Central African time. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back to this very, very haunting topic of Marikan after the break. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Well, it's 25 minutes past 11 o'clock. Today, we're looking back at Marikana. It took place on this particular day. That is the massacre. We know that uh, the protest was taking place days uh, before this particular day. But this is the day that marked the uh, the death of uh, the miners on the 16th of August. And it seems like uh, there's still a process that, that is unfulfilled. Listening to Kuselwa Gyanki, the attorney uh, from uh, the Socioeconomic Rights Institute in terms of still we are in a moment with those families that lost uh, family members in this massacre. Still the reparation process has not even started from where I hear Kuselwa speaking from. David Bruce is still highlighting the fact that there's still questions that linger around the intent of sending out police and how uh, this whole process unfolded. Um, We also have Patrick Craven, uh, the South African Federation of uh, Trade Unions spokesperson joining us on the line. David, why did you take up on this particular task? Just before we went to a break, you were telling me that uh, you you started just collecting documents and looking in a more detailed and maybe more scientific fashion on just what happened here. Tell us a little bit about why you embarked on this particular process and what you actually uncovered. Right, okay. Well, uh, so um, my background is that I've been working as a researcher in the field of policing and with a specific focus on the use of force. Mm. And so when Marikana happened, it was something that I immediately took an interest in. And um, at that time, I, I developed some ideas of my own about what was likely to have happened there, particularly at this second 
uh, location where the killings took place, which is known as Scene 2. And so then uh, the, the Marikana Commission report was eventually released in, in June 2015. And the one thing that struck me about the report was just that um, it went into some detail about what had happened at the first location where uh, strikers had been killed. But at the second uh, location, it basically all it really said was that um, it didn't accept the account that had been provided by the SAPS. But beyond that, it didn't really, it didn't make any real findings about what had actually happened at this, you know, at scene two. And so it seems to me, you know, considering that Marikana is considered to be a, an event of great significance in the post-apartheid history of South Africa, that it was important to know more about what had happened at, at scene two and to, you know, try and uh, take it beyond the level of myth into a, 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 a uh, to uh, a point where people would, would have a, a much fuller understanding of what had actually happened there. And so that was the motivation for my research. Um, initially, I thought that there would be very little information. I expected that there would be very little information that was available. And so I expected that it would take a, a relatively short time. But what I encountered, you know, relatively early on was that... Um, there were a lot of documents that had been available to the commission. So it wasn't that I had to search uh, far and wide for the information that I analyzed. It was more that it was just a, a kind of quite a, a complex range of different types of information. There were The one thing was that the, the, the accounts provided by police were themselves very confusing and often contradictory. Uh, there were also a large number of strikers uh, statements from the strikers that had been taken by uh, an organization called the the Independent Police Investigative Directorate, which is a South African organization, uh, government department f uh, responsible for investigating the police. And so they'd taken statements. So a lot of strikers had been arrested at scene two in, uh, you know, on, uh, on the 16th. And they'd been uh, taken to various police stations and, and were being held in custody. And so in the days immediately after the, the massacre on the 16th, the, the IPID took, quite a, uh, took statements from these strikers. But again, reading and interpreting those statements was not a straightforward matter. So that was quite challenging. Then there were actually, there wasn't really video evidence. There's um, some video material taken from a helicopter which was, I believe, something like 30,000 feet above the location where the, this was taking place. So um, <clears throat> one can, for instance, um, see um, from this photographic material, from the, the, the this helicopter, from the video material at least, uh, when the water cannons are being fired. But beyond that, one can't really see what's going on. Uh, but um, but there were also police helicopters um, in the vicinity of uh, these events, and intermittently there were photographs taken from these police helicopters. So there's actually quite a lot to go by. There's also a, a, a report from the uh, independent forensic and ballistic experts. So it was more a question of of trying to look at all of this information sure. and 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 try and 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 integrate it into sure. an overall picture of what had happened
So what stood out for you, especially at that second scene, in terms of what didn't we know about that particular area that now you were able to unpack for us? Well, there's a slightly detailed story, but one aspect of it. So you see, the I mean, when people think about Marikana, again, if they think about it in terms of this first shooting, the shooting there took lasted 12 seconds. So the 17 people who were killed at scene one were killed in a burst of gunfire that lasted for 12 seconds. At scene two, the the... The, you, one can think of it in terms of four different shooting episodes. So there were, there was a, a man who was killed on the west side of this area, and that was the, he was the first person to be shot fatally. And then there were uh, two other men who were killed on the opposite side. There were also a group of people right in the, the, the kind of center of this area who were trying to take shelter from the water cannons and the police gunfire. So one thing that had happened was that police had approached this area from different sides. There was no one uh, exercising centralized command and control over these different police units. And no one actually informed them that your colleagues are positioned on the opposite sides of this area. And so once the first shooting took place, police on the other side interpreted this to mean that the strikers inside the, um, the, the this, this area were shooting at them. So the, fr- the response from some of the police officers who were present, so you might need to remember that there were a large number of police officers who were there. Not all of them were involved in the shooting. So some of them became actively involved. Well, you know, a lot of them did actually not, you know, w- you know re- refrain from, from shooting into this area. Mm. But, but nevertheless, um, so some of them start shooting into the area um, irrespective of the fact that they can't actually clearly see who is shooting at them, and irrespective of the fact that there's a large number of people gathered inside this area. Mm. And so what seems to be clear is that there's a strong element of antagonism by the police um, to the strikers. And uh, in in understanding that, one of the things to bear in mind is that there was a confrontation between police and strikers three days previously, in which five people died, but uh, three of them were, were strikers, but two of them were police officers. Sure. And it seems that, you know, the police um, who were at Marikana on the 16th, a lot of them uh, were, were effectively carrying a kind of grudge mm. against the strikers uh. as a broad group. Mm-hmm. So, so we're talking about an overall group of, of roughly 3,000 strikers. Mm. The, the, the strikers who, who would have been involved in killing their... Um, colleagues would have been, you know, a very small group of strikers. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, you know, the way these things sometimes work is that if, uh, you know, one person from a group attacks someone, then people will uh, translate that into hostility against sure. the group as a whole. Yeah. And that seems to have been, uh, you know, one of the dynamics that mm. the emotional dynamics behind the shootings. Mm. So the shootings, it seems clear that. Um, most of the shootings that took place at the second scene, mm. that the police can't justify them on a legal bo- basis. Mm. And one needs to uh, you know, understand them in terms of some kind of hostility mm. against the strikers. Let me come to you, Cosello. This kind of narrative that we just heard by David, still kind of haunting, does it actually give us extra ammunition for us to actually get some form of justice for the community in some way? Because 
this particular aspect of what was happening was very muted even after we saw uh, the commission's um, findings. Yeah, what I can say is that I don't. Um, uh, David's uh, report. We're hoping that it's also gonna uh, have an impact um, on uh, NPA to make um, uh, 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 certain decisions. Mm. But um, since 2012, we still have um, uh, you know the postmortem reports. They don't lie. The postmortem reports, especially the ones from um, what we refer to at Sintu where um, uh, he's uh, doing his report. Mm. Um, they, all of them, they're showing that uh, all these mine workers were killed either they were raising their hands or they were killed um, at the at the back. So yeah. no one uh, was was killed um, Confrontation. confrontational. So okay. those kind of uh, 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 like, uh, uh, evidence, if it was ignored in uh, 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 20, 20 after the I mean, after the commission, mm. so like now we are still uh, sitting with those reports and none of the police officers have been uh, uh, called to account or even the the senior uh, police ofi- ofi- mm. officials. So right now, um, we we just like uh, we are just pushing. We're hoping that the report will have the impact to um, IPIT um, and uh, the NPA to at least to 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 have the police uh, to account on of what happened in Maragana. Now, in terms of you say that some of uh, the members of the deceased are now working in those particular mines. Mm. That that takes a little bit of um, desperation. It just shows kind of the desperation that the families are from an economic standpoint of view that they would actually work for the same mine where maybe a family member was work was working and died mm. by you know in the hands of it. Um, how do people consolidate that kind of reality? How are the family members coping with having to do such things? It's very difficult mm. because. Um, like even the oh, the clients when they asked f- to take up those jobs, uh, I don't think maybe they were aware of the the, the consequences that they are actually gonna go and work for the same company that killed their loved ones. Mm-hmm. And um, these are uh, for an example, uh, the widow couldn't go, and then they will send um, uh, their firstborn son to take mm-hmm. up the work. And then the, that child was not even ready to to be uh, to, to to be uh, you know a sole breadwinner and go and work for the family. Yeah. And then he was like he didn't have any options. Like my dreams is to be a soccer player, mm. to go to university. But now I've got this responsibility hanging over me, which I cannot ignore. You go and work. You realize like your father went through so much pain, mm. and then he ended up like couldn't take it anymore. Like I just can't. Mm. I tried to support my family, but this is too much for me mm-hmm. i was not ready for this and some of the widows as well because uh, they went through some kind of uh, a, a, um, uh, a screening process mm-hmm. just to check how fit to you are to go either underground or to work on the surface mm-hmm. so some were like fit to go underground they were sent underground regardless of uh, like who they are mm-hmm. so they were like you fit enough to go underground go underground and then now you're working at 4 a.m. You're going oh. to wear the same clothes, um, looks, uh, look like your husband's uniform that he used to wear. He died wearing the same exactly uniform. Mm-hmm. So you, 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 they go to worry, like, am I going to ever maybe come out of this underground or what's going to happen to me? What about my children back at home? But either way, they mm-hmm. took those, those kind of jobs. They were not, they were, there was a pressure. 
and of like if I, if we don't act because we are being ignored, I think we might as well just face one of the devils. If mm. the, the the government is not coming through or loanmen is not helping us, we must just take one of the things that are available for us, mm. which is very sad. Even today, they are mm. yeah they are in Marikana. Patrick, thank you for being so patient there on the line because these narratives need to be told, and I uh, don't interrupt the two guests in studio because I feel like the, the, those stories and narratives have to be unpacked in terms of the new um, information that is coming out that is now retelling the story and actually posing also new questions at the same time, Patrick. Post the Americana Commission and after the Falam report, it's been quiet. What more can be done to actually, for us to actually have a conclusive um, kind of episode for this Marikana situation? Well, there are two short-term issues which have been well covered by the other speakers. One is the issue of compensation, which uh, it's a scandal that that still hasn't been resolved. And the other is the, the prosecution, or identification and then prosecution of those who are, are guilty. But Safdi would add a third one. We think that all the information which we've just been hearing as well as all the uh, other factors which have been unearthed, strengthen the argument for the nationalization of the mining industry. Some of the underlying problems come from the fact that uh, the private owners of these companies are always uh, desperate to maintain or better still increase their profits, which creates an, uh, an inevitable conflict and tension between them and the workers. And uh, this, we believe, will only be in the long term resolved when we treat the mining industry as a national uh, asset, something which has to be managed in the interests of the workers, the surrounding communities, and the country as a whole, and not simply as a business, uh, where you have to do everything you can to uh, maximize your profits. We should never forget that one of the issues at the time of Marikana was uh, a wage claim by the rock drillers mm. of 12,500 rand a month, which uh, was an entirely reasonable demand mm. for workers um, doing such dangerous and unhealthy and difficult jobs. And uh, what is particularly interesting in the current negotiations, AMCO is yet again raising the very same figure, sure. which uh, is even more justified now because inflation over six years means that 12,500 is worth actually much less mm. than it was at the time. Um, these should be resolved round the table and not uh, in terms of a, a situation of conflict where it's being fought out between uh, employer and employees, which inevitably then runs the risk of uh, violent confrontation, as we saw at Marikana. Mm. David, as we wrap up the program, do you see us going through another kind of inquisition of sorts of trying to resolve some of the unresolved in this situation? To me, I'm, I'm puzzled by that question myself because it seems mm. to me that, you know, as people have said, that there is so much that is unaddressed. There's so many things that still have to be done. There's still so much that has to be understood um, and so it seems to me that um, there is a need for for some deepening of the current process 
to try and ensure that these different strands are brought together and um, you know resolved in a in a more uh, systematic way. From your perspective, uh, Kuselo, as, as we wrap it up, I'm sure you guys are pursuing a legal um, pathway now. Um, what would you like to see as the Socioeconomic Rights Institute? First of all, um, a simple apology before mm. we talk about um, even paying From whom? out um, From whom? Uh, loss of support. Uh, an apology, it could be anyone from the state, because they did um, say it must be from the Minister of Police, who was then, uh, they have changed them so many times. Mm. So I don't think right now uh, it matters who from the state should apologize to these families. And um, it is a legal um, uh, 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 issue because we have filed it in court. So they are still demanding it. They must um, apologize for what happened Number two is um, uh, to to pay the the loss of support, and um, they want closure. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to to have that closure if no one has ever come forward and say we are sorry, uh, we acknowledge of what of what happened, mm-hmm. and um, uh, we are coming to you and we want to know at least what can we do better to change your lives. Mm-hmm. So that is closure for the families. They will be able at, at, at least to have that um, process with the government um, uh, and uh, they will be able to reconcile. So right now um, they are still crying for justice. Mm. They are, their situation hasn't changed, I must just say that, mm. because since t- um, uh, the massacre, nothing has changed. They haven't received anything that I've just mentioned. Well, thank you for giving us your time. Very chilling encounters and just narratives that are coming from both Kuselo Gyanki, who is a candidate attorney at the Socioeconomic Rights Institute, and David Bruce, who is an independent researcher. He's been working on uh, a report by Marie Khan that's been released by the Institute of Security Studies. Thank you both for coming to our studios and giving us your time. And thank you as well to Patrick Craven, spokesperson for the South African Federation of Trade Unions, for giving us his time on the line. It's so sad to see these outcomes, especially how, you know, Marikana has been politicized by certain uh, political parties in the country. And just to see the fact that it seems like the community is left at bay by itself is still a worrying, worrying uh, conclusion that we can sum up from today's discussion. But uh, let's quickly move on. Let's go for a quick break and then we'll come back and get our business news. Bisani Matebula is standing by and thereafter we'll get our sports. Mm-hmm.